0: So for the catechism service today, I was uh, wanting to speak a little bit regarding the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is one of the lesser known creeds of what we call the um, ecumenical creeds. You can find it in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal if you wanted to to, um, uh, take a look at it. It's a longer creed, it's longer than the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, but it is a rich creed. It's named after Athanasius. Athanasius lived A.D. 293 to 373. He did not write the creed himself, but the creed reflects the orthodoxy that Athanasius defended against the Arian heresy. People think that most likely this creed was written in the 5th or 6th century and it gained creedal status at the Synod of Aton in A.D. 670. Uh, This creed is well known as as, as we think about the Athanasian Creed. It's well known uh, for its Trinitarian orthodoxy, for its uh, unity with the Chalcedonian statement regarding the two natures of Christ. It is a remarkable creed. And if you've not spent time in the creed, I would encourage you to take a look at it. It is just breathtaking in how it reflects so well the Trinity. You know, throughout the years, this creed, again, has been admired for the truth that it contains. A very orthodox But there have been a few things regarding the creed that have been a bit controversial. For one, the exclusivity, where it claims that only this God, only our triune God, is the God in whom we must believe to be saved. And and it also gives anathemas if you do not believe this God. So that's been a bit controversial for some For example, in the creed, line one says, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. They're talking about the universal faith, the faith of the the church universal. Line two says, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless, doubtless perish eternally. Line 44, this is the Catholic faith that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. You know, our current cultural climate is such that people don't like anathemas and they don't like exclusivity, but as Christians, we we can't avoid such things, can we? In fact, I think it is by drawing boundaries, by showing where we are, by drawing the lines, we are actually doing a very loving thing. We are being clear. We are being honest. We are being true, not only to ourselves, but to others as well. One church historian, Carl Truman, was commenting on the kind of controversy that has arisen with uh, with the Athanasian Creed, and he says, this creed is not dealing with trivia or with matters of peripheral relevance to the church. It is dealing with the very identity of God in such a manner that denial of its affirmations places one's soul in serious jeopardy. So in other words, the ecumenical creeds are not talking about peripheral matters. They are talking about matters of central importance. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? These are massive truths. And if we see true statements about who God is, and Truman says, and we reject it, well, that is going to be problematic to our eternal well being. So, in my sermon today, I want to focus a little bit more narrowly, though. I want to focus on the opening line of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, Last year, we had opportunity at Westside to walk through the creed in our catechism service. And I wanted today to just spend some time on that opening phrase, whoever desires to be saved. Let's talk about that opening phrase, whoever desires to be saved. I can remember being a new Christian and I asked someone, are you saved? And they looked at me puzzled and they, they, had no, they didn't know what I was talking about. Saved from a fire? Saved from tornado? Saved from what? They had no idea. didn't register to them Why didn't it register to them? It didn't register to them because they didn't know any problem that they had that need fixing. They did not know that they were guilty and in needing of atonement. They did not know that any judgment was going to come in their uh, their future. The idea of being saved, well, it makes sense when we understand what we are being saved from and what we are being saved for. We must understand that if being saved as the creed opens makes any sense to us. The Bible makes clear that we are saved from the wrath of God, from judgment, from hell. And as we think about the wrath of God or judgment or hell, those things are not coming upon innocent bystanders. It's not like people are out there just trying to do their best. Good people, innocent people, and now judgment's coming to them. No, the Bible makes very clear that we deserve punishment, that we are guilty, that we have sinned, people who have sided with Satan, and we have lived willfully in darkness. And when we realize that the divine and the righteous judge has every right to condemn us for our rebellion... We now understand what it means to be saved or what the idea of being saved is. Now, again, it's not very popular today, is it, to talk about judgment or to talk about uh, anything like that? Hell, sin, people don't like to hear that. We'd rather talk about love and friendship, and those are great things. We we ought to talk about, about those things as well, but we must be true to the Bible's message, and if all we do is perhaps give the positives, then you will be kind of struck like my friend was when I asked him, are you saved? Shockingly to some, as they read the Bible, Jesus spoke a lot about the coming judgment. He spoke a lot about sin and about uh, God's wrath and among other things, but some people are surprised with the frequency by which Jesus spoke about these matters. So here's a bit of a sampling. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 15. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew 11:22 But I tell you it will it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Matthew 12:36 uh, I tell you on the day of judgment people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And finally Matthew 12:41 The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Interesting how frequently he was mindful of the coming judgment. And he made that known to his audience. I think we get the point here of what Christ is pointing us to. And not only did Christ speak about the coming judgment, but it featured in the apostolic Uh, evangelistic message as well. For example, in, uh, in Acts 17, Paul is preaching to a pagan crowd, and Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Again, examples could be multiplied. It's interesting to think about judgment and about hell. Um, Just looking at the biblical history, if we go back to Adam and Eve, but even before they, they ate the forbidden fruit... Hell was originally a place that only Satan and his his fallen angels, his demonic army, would have gone into. But after after our first parents' rebellion, now Judgment Day and hell and 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 uh, um, all of that is now for sinful people as well. You could say that when Adam and Eve sided with Satan, they signed up everybody, all of mankind. For judgment and for the possibility of hell. And it was with that backdrop that salvation now shines more brightly against the dark canvas of sin and the dark canvas of Adam and Eve and their their rebellion against the dark canvas of the wrath of God, now the salvation and the loving heart of our triune God shines all the more bright. Now all of scripture is pointing to a day in which God will come and Believers will be rescued, unbelievers will, will be punished and God will bring new creation, eternal creation and as we think about all the events in the Bible as we survey all of the biblical history and we look at the exodus and the building of the temple and the exile and the, the restoration and the building uh, uh, wor- or the rebuilding rather of the temple and the work of Christ and the spread of the church and so on it's all leading to consummation all leading to that end Point, G.K. Beale wrote, "All these events with glorious goals point to the glorious goal of the final events of history, in which God will definitively execute judgment, accomplish redemption, and establish eternal new creation." So, to help illustrate this, if you have your Bibles with you this morning and you want to turn there, turn with me to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Peter is uh, begins in Second Peter three, and he's he is exhorting the church to remember the predictions of the prophets and the commands of. The Apostles you might remember in Second Peter chapter three, there are various scoffers who are scoffing at Peter at the church, and they are saying things like, "Well, where is Christ? It's taking too long. Why haven't you given up hope yet? The clock has just been ticking, and there's no Christ coming back. And to this question, the Apostle Peter says, the scoffers have forgotten their own history. They have lost sight of the events of the past and they have forgotten how God typically works in the past. Peter shows us that history is divided into three ages or three epochs, you could say. Peter says that there was the world that then was. The world that then was. We could call that the then world That was the pre-flood world, the world that existed prior to Noah's global flood. And after the flood, Peter says, there is the world that now is. We could call that the now world. We are living in the now world. And then in in verse 13, Peter speaks about the new heavens and the new earth. We could call that the new world. So we have the then world that was pre-flood. The now world, that is Noah to our present day, and then we have the new world that will be established when Christ returns. So just as the then world, the world that existed before the flood of Noah, the then world was brought into judgment, and so what Peter is saying is that judgment awaits the now world. Meredith Klein, one biblical theologian, said, "...the apostle speaks of the original heavens and earth created by God, a world that perished in the judgment of the flood, and he sets that pre-flood world over against the present heavens and earth, which is also moving toward a destiny of divine judgment." Just as the then world moved into judgment, so must the now world move toward judgment. Just as people who live between Adam and Noah were on a conveyor belt to divine judgment, so too are all those in the now world, us today even, on a conveyor belt, you could say, that will lead us into divine judgment. You know, it's difficult to date that time between Adam and Noah, Adam and the flood. What was that time period or that time gap? But people think that it was at least 1,700 years. 1,700 years between Adam and Noah and the flood that happened. Which means that the then world existed for 1,700 years. That's a long time, isn't it? That's a long time of, of God being long-suffering. God being patient. God delaying his judgment. You know, a, we, a there was a wicked people on the earth that wanted to do evil continually in their hearts and God was patient and long-suffering and in the end only one man is found righteous before God. Noah and his family, eight people in total, were saved on the ark during the time of the flood and days before the flood hit. What was happening? The ungodly people were marrying and eating and drinking and having fun and going to work and going to school, and water judgment came to them. To pass through judgment and survive, you had to be on the ark. Only on the ark will you find salvation through judgment. It's interesting to kind of think about, well, what was that climate like days leading up to getting on the ark Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, so perhaps he was out there preaching to a pagan world, pleading with people to get on the ark, but he was preaching to reprobate ears, and in the end, only eight got on the ark, only eight were saved, and they passed from the then world into the now world. Peter's message then is that our world too is heading toward a type of destruction and judgment as well. As was the days of Noah, so will be the days of the Son of Man. In verse 10 in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The people in Noah's day faced water judgment. The people in the now world are facing fire judgment. And there is only one way in which you can be saved, and that is being in Christ. Christ is the only ark. Christ is the only way in which one can travel from the now world into the new world. And in the new world, Peter says, only righteousness dwells. You will not be able to sin in the new world. You will not be able to have a sinful thought. You will not be able to say a sinful thing. You will not be able to do a sinful deed. It is a realm totally saturated by the Spirit of God, completely righteous, and all because of Christ. But what does this mean now? Well, Peter says that God has not forgotten us. People are saying, well, where is Christ? Too much time has passed. Peter says, think about the past. 1,700 years before before the water um, judgment came, God is patient. God has delayed his wrath, delayed judgment. But why would he do this? Why does God delay? Why doesn't God just come now and punish sinful and wicked people? Well, verse 8, Peter says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill this promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God set the rainbow in the sky as a sign of his delay, of his delay judgment. This era, you could say, of common grace for the purpose of salvation. For the purpose of people repenting of their sins and believing on Christ. Yes, fire judgment is coming upon the now world just as water judgment came upon the, the, uh, the then world. But our only hope here and the now is in Christ. And so as we reflect on the opening phrase here in the Athanasian Creed, we, I think, sense a bit of the evangelistic zeal. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Do you desire to be saved? Do our friends desire to be saved? Do our co-workers desire to be saved? What of our family members? Well, as, as Reformed Christians, we know that ultimately, ultimately that desire is given by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through means, does he not? How will they believe unless someone preaches? Let us then go, friends, and tell of this universal faith. Let us tell of this triune God of Christ, fully man, fully God, who died upon the cross, who rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, interceding for us now, and will one day come back to judge the living and the dead. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. God is delaying final judgment. And because of this delay, we should be motivated to take this message, the message of the ecumenical creeds and, 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 and also of our confessions, we should be motivated to take the message of the gospel to our neighbors, our families, our friends, so that in the end, They could stand with us, and they could say with us, even as Peter said, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen.